0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: consequence podcast network Welcome to State of the Empire, the Star Wars speculation podcast where we look for news in Alderaan places. Hi, I'm Cap, and as we inch closer to the release of Solo, A Star Wars Story, there are news tidbits creeping out and new trailers to analyze, but shockingly, not much. Tickets aren't even on sale yet. Granted, with our luck, as soon as we publish this, tickets could be on sale, and maybe we'll even have scans of the film's source book or something ridiculous, but what I'm getting at is, we're light on news. So for this episode, we're going into the archives and dusting off some interviews with Star Wars personalities that myself and the State of the Empire crew did before State of the Empire was a thing, before Disney bought Lucasfilm. We've done this once before in Episode Twenty Seven of State of the Empire, where we dusted off a 2010 interview with Billy D. Williams. As we enter the 19-month Gulf between Solo and Episode Nine, surprise, Rey was Bendu all along. We're probably going to have a new animated Star Wars show to talk about, and new comics and novels and all kinds of weird rumors to pick apart, but more likely than not, we're going to need to rely less on the news and more on tapping the wide world of Lucasfilm past and present, with all kinds of new content, including more interviews. So, we thought we'd take this moment to finally unload our back catalog of prequel-era State of the Empire content. In this episode, we're speaking with both Boba Fetts, the original man behind the mask, Jeremy Bullock, and the young Boba, Daniel Logan, as well as General Veers himself, Julian Glover, legendary sound designer Ben Burtt, and three of the five or so people who puppeteered of the Hutt, Dave Barclay, Toby Philpot, and John Coppinger, all of whom are storied names in cinematic puppeteering and whose credits extend beyond Star Wars. These interviews were conducted as part of Nerdy Show, the podcast State of the Empire was born out of, which I still do, and which you can find at nerdyshow.com. On these recordings, you're not only going to hear my voice, which sounds quite different from how it does now, as well as the voices of other nerdy show hosts who also appeared on some of our first episodes of State of the Empire. We'll kick things off with Jeremy Bullock, who Hex and I met up with in 2010 at Star Wars Celebration five in Orlando.
0: Jeremy, Boba Fett was a relatively minor role uh, in a film where you didn't even get to see your face. What's the film that you're most proud of acting in?
2: Well, I'm still proud of, uh, you know, Boba Fett because he's such a fun character to play. I like to think that you always put something of yourself into the part, although it was a small part and maybe there are loads of people who would have got dressed up as Boba Fett and done just as well. One of my favorite films was Mary Queen of Scots, which Mm. had every actor, Shakespearean or otherwise, in it, and I was part of that. That was fun. But I, I think I've had a terrific career over 52 years now, and I'm, st- I'm still working, so that's good
0: You did a couple of Star Wars fan films, Order of the Sith, Vengeance, and sequel, Downfall, Order of the Sith. How did you get involved with those projects?
2: Well, people ask you to do it, will you help? There's some new, new young directors that come along, and they say, would you mind doing it? As long as people are not making something, a film, for money out of you, that's fine, but you have to be very careful. And so you say, yes, I'll come along and do it. And there's some fun things they do. So you just get involved with it, just have a laugh, and not worry, not get too serious about it. What was your role in those films? Well, I was playing an engineer in one. I think I was playing myself in one of them. Oh, really? they say, well, oh, look, there's Boba Fett, and I had to turn around and say, Boba Fett, where? <laughs> <laughs> just carry on having a drink at the bar. Something silly. You
0: know. but during your um, presentation on Boba Fett on the celebration stage, you uh, danced out to MC Chris's uh, Fett's Vet at the very end. Oh, you had to. And of course, that's the song about Boba Fett. Had you heard it before? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff
2: no i just enjoy doing that you
0: know, just be part of it. again have fun the fans have been brilliant here yeah, that's a fantastic way to exit the room yeah. not a bad exit was it no not at all and uh, you have a, a memoir you did Flying Solo it's uh, on yeah, sale here
2: it's done well I mean I, uh, I can only bring a certain amount of copies because it's in a slip case it's limited to 2,000 copies And here, it's sold out, the copies I had. Mm. So then people get it online, and I'm very proud of the book.
0: It's got a very, very intense tagline, unlike any other autobiographical work you are likely to read. Why is that?
1: Well, you'll have to buy the book.
0: (laughs) It's a mystery. He's got
1: you there. Our interview with Daniel Logan comes from that same show, where he and Jeremy Bullock had done an onstage event together.
0: You're really energetic in real life. I mean, now it's the end of the con, so you're kind of worn down. But you got to play young Boba Fett, and he's really stoic. How do you turn
3: yourself down? Well, it comes to the point where when I'm on set, I have no fans. The fans are the ones that give me my energy. (laughs) Just someone coming up to you from the beginning to the end of your day and telling you how much they love you and appreciate your work. I can't even put into words, and you can't buy that. When it comes to acting, Boba Fett is Boba Fett. He's not me. And it's like two worlds. When I move into Boba Fett, I prepare myself that I'm becoming Boba Fett. When I walk outside the conventions, I become Daniel Logan again. And really what Boba Fett comes down to, you know, the more hungry he is, the more angry looking he's going to be. So basically starve me and I'll, you'll have an angry character.
0: <laughs> when you
3: uh, pick up your father's helmet on that uh, in that arena floor, is the head still in the helmet? No, the head is actually out of the helmet. The head um, separates from the helmet about uh, two to three seconds before it hits the floor. If you slow it down and you freeze frame, frame by frame, you'll see a shadow of the head actually leaving the helmet. True story.
0: Did you do that investigative work yourself?
3: I actually did. (laughs) People kept coming up to me like, oh, did the head fall out of the helmet? Did the head fall out of the helmet? Kind of like your nerdy question. (laughs) And, uh... I would always be like, no, it stuck. Django's head is so big that, you know, like he had trouble getting on and off just in the morning. But um, it actually does come out, and I found out myself, and then I kind of was proud of myself because I'd come to conventions and be like, hey, slow it down. and Everyone else tried to say, oh, I came up with that, but no one ever told me that, you know? I told everybody that, and I was the one, well, me and my pops, because, you know, he's a big Star Wars fan, yeah. real cool, you know, N-E-R-D, nerd. My <laughs> friends come over to my house, and he's sitting in our living room, and all you can hear is, Dun, 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 dun. And, and me and my buddies are playing Call of Duty, you know? And I kind of look at them all like, yeah, that's my pops. Uh, he likes Star Wars. And we kind of give each other this awkward look, and then we go back to playing video games.
0: But behind the scenes, after conventions like this, do you have crazy parties or any sort of nightlife? Like, what does Daniel Logan do to decompress after a convention? I meditate.
3: I sit in the middle of a corner, usually in the most loudest area, mostly a bar area, mm. and now I'm just. Okay. <laughs> no, these conventions are work, so it comes down to the point where not only do I get to enjoy working with them, but I get to enjoy hang- hanging out with people who are like my family, mm. like friends that I've met over these years at conventions, and now we associate so well that we're like good, good friends. So you know, mostly just interacting with my buddies.
0: Last night was the um, last trip to Endor.
3: I was a very lucky boy. I actually was fortunate to sit up close to George Lucas from the little uh, Indiana Star Wars thing. So that was really, really, really cool.
0: Now George seems like he's taking a liking to you, uh, intoning publicly that you're going to be involved in whatever live action project he comes up with. He said that? uh, That's what I read on the internet. That like He's implied that if there is a live action thing, and it seems like there's going to be, that you would be involved with it because he likes you a lot. Really? Yeah.
3: No way. (laughs) No, are you serious?
0: (laughs) That's what I've read. I mean, the internet can be wrong. Oh, that is so cool. I don't know where those quotes are I I tell you what. Go to your Wikipedia page. (laughs) I love
3: uh, love George Lucas. (laughs) Well, um, the live action, I mean, Star Wars again anything with Star Wars I would love to be a part of you know I would give any limb in my body to be in Star Wars just like Darth Vader just like Anakin Skywalker you know I would literally give a limb just to be a a tree swaying in the background that gets green screened every day (laughs) but um, I haven't heard anything you know and George is a very creative man and I mean you know he's one of those men he doesn't like to give too much out straight away and that's even to uh, the actors so if the opportunity arises and they allow me to either
1: that thing about Daniel Logan being looked to for the long-discussed, never-realized Star Wars live-action series wasn't bullshit. It was mentioned a number of times, like in 2007 when Rick McCullum said at a Star Wars event in France that the live-action series would be on cable with a contract for 100 episodes, which he hoped would be extended to 400. Boba Fett would be a part of it, and Rick wanted him to be played by Daniel Logan, And also, weirdly, he mentioned that Expanded Universe characters could appear after the first 100 episodes, but not before. Now that there's an actual live-action Star Wars TV series that's been greenlit, maybe we'll see him again. But there's no indication at all that Jon Favreau's series is the same one that was in development hell at Lucasfilm years before Disney. Daniel did, of course, continue to play Boba Fett through the Clone Wars animated series, including episodes that were half-finished but never released. We actually saw a brand new scene with him in it at the 2017 Star Wars Celebration, elaborating on how Boba Fett got the big dent in his helmet. You can hear us detail the scene in State of the Empire, episode 32, linked on this episode's page. Next up is another interview from Celebration 5, this one led by Hex, with Julian Glover, who not only played one of the Empire's greatest tacticians and the scheming Walter Donovan in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade but also Bond villain Aristotle Christados in For Your Eyes Only.
4: Hello, my name is Julian Glover. I'm an English actor, as you can hear, and I'm appearing on the Nerdy Show.
5: One of my favorite Imperial officers from Star Wars was General Veers, because he he seemed to be the only one who could actually deliver when Vader wanted him to do something right. That's right.
4: (laughs) And he's he's quite a strong man, isn't he, Um, General Veers? He stands up and he won't take any nonsense. And uh, although he is very obedient, because that's his job, he's not subservient. He doesn't crawl and cringe. And that's why I like playing him. It makes him the exception to a lot of the characters well, well, on screen. Well, it does. Yes, it does yes, yes. Of course, it's a moot point whether he's killed at the end or not. No, nobody really knows where he was. And in fact, the opening was so wide that um, they talked about me coming back in the next film. But I couldn't do it anyway. I, I wasn't free to do it. So that idea went down the drain. Which I'm a bit sorry about. It would have been very useful at these conventions to have been in two of the Star Wars um.
5: Yeah, I was always a little disappointed that of all the high-ranking officers, the only one that really made it back was Admiral Piat I'm like, well, Beers G- was so he, successful. He's a worm. I know. He's a worm. <laughs> 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 he doesn't want that position. He knows what's going to happen. But Beers, <laughs> he could have like, if he was there at Endor, they could
4: have just wiped everything up. <laughs> well, he's forgiven for that because he's such a nice man, the actor. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's,
5: it's, it's, how was the the difference between filming for like Empire and filming for The Last Crusade? Oh, welcome.
4: Completely different. In Empire, we were entirely in the studio, a very small part, and I did it all in five days. And um, Indiana Jones was all over the place, wonderful locations, and uh, i working with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg. That's the difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Why, a yeah. really good part, a really good part.
1: Yeah, that's right. Veers could have been in Jedi. <laughs> now, there's an alternate reality I'd like to see. One where maybe there's someone operating the walkers on Indoor that isn't going to let a bunch of teddy bears push them around. If his name ever came up in any of the old scripts Doug's been digging through, you can bet he'd have mentioned it, but we'll stay vigilant to see if we can find out what may have been, if there's anything documenting that. Now Ben Burt, this is the man who defined the sound of Lucasfilm, not just doing sound design for the original trilogy and all the prequels, but the original three indie movies and Willow. The magic of what we understand as the sound of Star Wars is as much him as it is John Williams. This interview was conducted in 2012 at Star Wars Celebration 6 by master audiophile Mark with a C. Mark was on early episodes of State of the Empire, but if you're tuned in to the Consequence Podcast Network, you'll recognize him as the host of our recently debuted series, Discography, which is a sequential journey into a legendary musician's catalog. The debut series is about Frank Zappa, and you should totally check it out. But back to Star Wars, Mark leads in with a question about Burt's pioneering development of the audio black hole a segment of absolute silence before an explosive sound.
5: I put it in, in sync with the flash of the explosion, but that just didn't seem to give it scale. This was supposed to be a cosmic blast. And then I began to think, well, sometimes you can get a surprise by having silence right before you want something to seem really loud. So I delayed the sound effect for a second or so after the flash in, in, in space. And now I I created something like lightning and thunder. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have lightning and thunder simultaneous usually, unless they're right on top of you. And so we associate the huge energy of thunder with the fact that it doesn't come where the flash is. So capitalizing on that idea... That's what I did in that mix, and that gave us the sensation of the sonic charge. Oh, thank gosh that you did, of course, yeah. because that's, it kind of shakes your seats. Um, also, of
0: course, the, the classic E.T. story about um, coming up with some sounds, your wife wasn't feeling well. Um, this is what I read on Wikipedia, so it could be incredibly erroneous. Okay. Uh, you, apparently, your wife wasn't feeling well, and you grabbed some sounds to use in the film E.T. from this.
5: It's true. Did uh, she? Was she embarrassed by this later? Yes, probably. <laughs> um, I haven't done it since. But I did set up a microphone on a stand in our bedroom, and uh, she was, uh, had the flu, and during the middle of the night, she was snoring a bit and breathing rather strange, so I put the mic as close as I could to her to get a, a, a recording, and later I used that for ET being set, what? and I've paid for it ever since.
0: Oh, I bet. (laughs) Audio editing has changed in immeasurable ways in the last 30, 40 years. Do you ever long for the days of analog, or have you just had your share of scissors, hot glue, you're done with it, you are happy to drag and drop?
5: I love drag and drop, but I do keep a room at Skywalker Sound full of all my old analog gear. Tape recorders, spring reverbs, uh, mechanical devices to make sound. Mm -hmm. And I still go in there and make sound and generate sound once in a while because there's always the character of improvised analog sound which you don't get with many software programs digitally you know that you just get something that's different and i'm always looking for something different sure. so uh, many times i want to harken back to the old ways because they've served me well in the past so head
0: with digital part with analog sort of
5: Yes, I love the the aspect of digital. I love the most is you can browse the enormous libraries and you can sample things very easily. You don't have generation loss from you know sound copy to copy. Those are great advantages. Sometimes you, I miss that spontaneity of working with physical objects to make sound. You know, and to uh, you know, I used to get flanging by playing two tape recorders and trying to start them at the same time. Right. And then, I'm put my thumb on the reels to slow one down, and you get effects you can't get digitally. Sure. You can emulate them, but you can't do the same thing. So there's advantages to both.
1: Now, contrary to what Return of the Jedi might have you believe, Bib Fortuna was not Jabba's right-hand man. It was very literally Dave Barclay, prominent puppeteer and designer for works like Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, and Little Shop of Horrors, to name but a few. This is an interview that Hex and I conducted at Megacon in 2010 leading in by asking him to elaborate on the experience of bringing Jabba to life.
6: I was chief puppeteer for Jabba the Hutt, so my uh, responsibility was to uh, provide the guide voice on set. So I spoke for Jabba in English when we performed him, and I controlled his jaw in sync with my voice, uh, with my left hand. With my right hand, I was performing Jabba's right hand. Between myself and my co-pilot, Toby Philpott, who was on the other side, we controlled all the body movements and brought him to life. I heard that uh, you also operated the tongue. No, actually, that was Toby. Toby did the tongue, because I I had the jaw, so we have to close the jaw right. with my hand because we only had two hands each. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to try and work out. Sometimes we used to do um, like tag team on on what we had to do to make all the different parts move for him. So there's only just enough room. We were shoulder to shoulder, head to head, basically inside the hollow shell of Java, So very tight in there.
0: You've worked on Henson uh, projects as well, yes. uh, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, yes. right? Yep, absolutely. When I finished working
6: with Frank Oz on Empire Strikes Back on Yoda, he invited. Me me to join Dark Crystal and I was the first British puppet maker puppeteer on Dark Crystal uh, November 1979 wow. <laughs> and then spent the next like year or so doing research and development um, for the different characters and then myself, Lyle Conway, built the, uh, the Skeksis, the ur sketches and Ogre, so we built all those puppet heads. So that was an amazing time because it was the birth of animatronics and what's now become standard we were inventing back then. Jim Henson allowed a great, great Environment for everyone to work and thrive, and that was fantastic. Nothing like it since. Um, they just the movie industry doesn't allow that kind of uh, development. Although there's some of the CG guys get that kind of development the, these days. So I guess the CG is the equivalent cutting-edge technology that animatronics was then. So just recently completed was the I was animatronic supervisor for Cats and Dogs Two, the Revenge of Kitty Galore. Oh boy! And, and I, uh, I built the most. sophisticated ever animatronic face in Mr. Tinkle's. Oh, wow. 76 very extreme miniature cables going up into his face, just his face. Oh, wow. 76 for his face. So that's and incredible. And that all ran down to banks of servo motors that were all computer controlled through my proprietary computer system, um, with special data gloves that I've designed and built. And we're also using some of that same technology to bring out to the real-time CG that the Hensons have done in the past.
0: Now, with the cats and dogs thing, that's the sort of puppeteering, masterminding that might go under most people who love puppeteering's radar to a certain extent. Yes. What are other examples of, uh, of things you've worked with that uh, are just massive feats of puppeteering that you think people might have ignored or aren't loved as much as they should be?
6: Right, well actually there was a huge amount of puppeteering on Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
0: Yeah, uh, you were I was a chief, major part of that, Yeah,
6: right? chief puppeteer of that. So I d- designed all the effects and built all the rigs and organized all the puppeteers. We had 17 puppeteers at the most in one day working all the different puppet rigs on the set.
7: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombas.com
0: slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
6: technology so it was actually filmed as a invisible man movie yeah so all the props would move around if a cartoon character was going to be in front of us and, and was going to move this desk and um, we would have to make the desk move we may have to slide a picture if he was going to knock it all of those things we had to do without the cartoon characters there then they would draw the cartoon characters in afterwards so um, I think a lot of people didn't realize there was so much puppet work and it was basically puppet, puppetry. puppet ghosts really yeah puppet ghosts yeah, yeah, yeah moving the props around on behalf of the, of the puppets of the characters I should say and then things like snow dogs uh, we built an animatronic version of the lead dog yeah. and um, the director asked the producers well what did you think of the animatronics and they said what animatronics <laughs> so they didn't even realise that there was any puppets or animatronics in the film at all so yeah sometimes we can do the job so well that people don't even know we've done it
3: <laughs> <laughs> and
5: uh, you were also involved in a Little Shop of Horrors with the, the puppetry in there yeah well I mean I'd worked with Frank
6: Oz on Dark Crystal on the labyrinth and back on return of the Jedi with the odor again so when it came time to do a little shop he asked me to be one of the core puppeteers and actually operate the lower lip the one of
0: the, ma- the most emotive
6: part of audrey too yeah. yeah just about so um so that was neat and then also during the long rehearsal period Lyle Conway, who's the uh, animatronic supervisor and Frank asked me to build and perform the hand sized version yeah. of audrey uh, sucking on Seymour's finger so i got to actually make and
0: perform that one so <laughs> Wow. So it was neat. Yeah, it was great. I recently actually saw the original ending to that, and yes. I was blown away by it. I wish there was a better copy of it that existed. The movie should have ended that way.
8: Well, it
6: was amazing. Richard Conway, um, a British uh, special effects guy, did all that work, and they, they spent like six, nine months on that stuff. And it looked massively it was, expensive, too. And it was phenomenal. They yeah. developed computer technology to move the uh, plants in a very high speed, because they were shooting at very high speed, yeah. to slow everything down and give it the weight. So they had to move the plant really fast to make it... Move properly. So they developed computer technology way back in the 80s to do that, and um, it was it was awesome. Such a shame that all that work was
1: was never seen. Fortunately, just two years after this interview, that work was reinstated in the director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors, which we'll link to on this episode's page. Later that year, at Celebration Five, we did a joint interview with Toby Philpot and John Coppinger, where we went further in depth in the process of making and puppeteering Jabba.
0: You guys were two of the many people inside Jabba the Hutt. Well,
7: let's get this right, yeah. I mean, John works on Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Mostly he built it, um, I couldn't have had a job if, if John hadn't designed him.
8: We had a small maquette from um, ILM that was done by Phil Tippett, so it was like an impression, and that must have been one that was chosen, because if you look at the records, it's quite a few small sculpts of Jabba. So the one we had from Phil Tippett from ILM, so it gave us an impression. It was about six inches long, and it was just a nice little thing, and then I scaled it up 15 foot by 5 foot tall and there was actually a team of six of us building him so I was the clay mechanic I did all the sculpting all the detail sculpting in the eyes and then a team of six of us built him and operated him yeah see that's
7: when my job started I didn't have a job until they'd built him then I went in for you know fittings Mm -hmm. and checking it out and rehearsing getting my arm molded the sleeve would fit and I was inside Jabba with Dave Barkley Um, when it was actually shooting, so we're the main puppeteers inside the body, or the head, actually it's all one big blob, but we're inside there. My left hand is Jabba's left hand, and Dave Barclay's right hand is the right hand, like a two-man submarine. And with our inside hands, we've got jobs. Dave did the mouth and was doing the dialogue over the speakers on the set. And my right hand was doing all the head moves, and was inside the tongue when the tongue was needed. So I'm half of the inside team, but at the same time, John would be outside with radio-controlled eyes, so he could see what the performance and like I, help direct us just the same way the director was directing the film. John was keeping an eye on the whole look of Jabba from the outside, and t- we talking on walkie-talkies and so on. But uh, you know, it's a team effort all the time. All the six builders were there, both me and Dave inside, and sometimes Mike Edmonds, who's a little guy. Mm-hmm for wide shots was uh, working the tail. So he was squeezed in with us as well. So there's, sometimes there were three of us jammed inside that. On the death scene, we had to do everything. We had to wave, with, you know, like a, a head, head, tongue, oh, eyes bulging. Yeah, we ever. just <laughs> jammed in there, <laughs> waving everything about. So Mike Quinn, I think, uh, claims the
8: eye bulge, was not yeah. he? he? was standing behind us, popping the eyes out. <laughs> we think there were eight people operating in yeah. the death scene, because there were three guys inside. And yeah. the tail with that one was basically just yeah. a string puppet being lashed about. And um, there were two, the two people. people on radio... Um, and two more people
7: underneath. Yeah. So it's different for every shot, basically. D- depending on the shot and what you need to achieve, you have a different crew. But as I say, we were hardcore. The, the absolute minimum would be someone on eyes and two people inside. That would be the minimum crew. Two oh, four. Sorry, because there were
8: two, two radio people. sets. It was one for expression. Oh, and one for yeah. eyes. Yeah. So there was always yeah. two people out front on right? radio.
0: Yeah. There was one guy in it who was only smoking. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. I was yeah. Told. Uh, he was often pulling
8: cables, but on that shot, <laughs> <where he's smoking>. <laughs> <laughs> he was smoking because you mustn't let oil smoke get near oil, and some metals will make it rot very, very quickly, I mean, wow. almost within hours. So we couldn't use oil smoke. So of Richard Patbury's job that day was to smoke
7: unteamed um, cigars underneath <laughs> 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 through a rubber pipe. So you know, you think of sophisticated special effects. That's not what we had. We had a man with a cigar blowing smoke. I mean, that's me. My hand was just putting the hooker in the mouth. You know, and and was. Puffing and the smoke coming out is yeah,
8: it's just cigar smoke. Well, no, he actually said that on the making of like, Well, <laughs> I need now cigar support. Of you know, I offered him a cigar in the bar that evening, and that uh, is closest to death I've been on that project. Yeah, he was it's a bit green by, by the end of the pressure.
5: day. One of my uh, favorite aspects of Jabba is how asymmetrical he is, where it's like one oh, eye right, is a little. Yeah. Was that part of the, the six inch, or was it that It was, especially?
8: no, it came from the little maquette. Yeah, okay. and the shape of the eyes, too, because our boss. Building him was still Freeborn, who's a renowned makeup and special effects. He is Yoda by his own admission. In know, looks like. <laughs> <doesn't> he? <laughs> He's still around. He's still picking it. Ninety something. It's remarkable. But he was burning brightly at sixty-five or so on that project. But he wanted big round eyes, and that didn't fit with the sort of feel of the character. So my first proper job in the film industry, I'm arguing with the boss about the eyes. So I did big round eyes and of course it looked pretty much like a frog and that's where the interior of big eyes came from it worked fine because it, yeah. it gives him that sleazy edge doesn't it yeah.
7: Yeah. no
0: we thought live with it and then yeah. we
8: thought no no that's the character it's <laughs>
0: yeah. and uh, from Star Wars to Jedi I remember a uh, scene that just showed the, the eyes by themselves functioning and they, they look like real eyes but there's some kind of microcontrollers inside of them how did those eyes work exactly it's always baffled me they seem so realistic the way the no, different eyes no ir- it's all radio control. they're small servos
8: and yeah. a standard model aircraft radio control unit and um the servo's robert Uh, bob keen and jess harris did most of the mechanism i was involved with sculpting the interior of the eyes and working with the vacuum former unit getting the shells vacuum formed and constructing some of the mechanism the clam shell for the mri the clam shells move back and there's ridges and they move little sort of finger pieces so although possibly you don't see it on film it, it was all to get, but you know, the eyes being the window of the soul, that's the thing we made most effort on. So there is little movement seething about as the eyes operate.
7: And the, the eyes are something that bring puppets to life. You know, even a simple puppet, when you sculpt it, it's when you paint the eyes in that it that it comes alive. And it's it's a, even a tradition in old kind of Balinese puppets and so on. It's like ma- when they're magic, like masks. They don't, you know, putting the eyes in is what brings it to life. It's the last thing you do. I mean, even simple puppets where the eyes don't move, it's true. But we would worked on Dark Crystal, and the eye movements in there were crucial. We did a lot of work on when do you blink, when do you look left, right. Eye movements are very, very significant. So we'd already done a lot of. Pr- practice on that, on Dark Crystal, as kind of uh, research, if you want. So by the time we got to Jabba, we got quite good at this stuff. (laughs) You know, because it it really matters. Breathing eyes completely fool your brain that it's a living being, you know.
5: Was it Dark Crystal where, I guess, the team really started working together first? Yeah,
7: Yeah, well, I mean, you've got to remember that they'd already made Yoda. Right. And that's the Jim Henson Creature Workshop. And to get away from his simple puppets, the classic puppets of the Muppet Show, you could almost see Dark Crystal as a showcase for what else they could do. Having done Yoda, he and George Lucas were quite close, and you could see him almost going, I'll show you some other stuff we can do. Here's Dark Crystal, look at this. It's quite a crossover, isn't it, between both the performers and the sculptures of Jabba. They were working quite closely together, because it was all done in London. It's not an American movie at all. It's all London crew. And so like, I do see Jabba and Yoda and, and Dark Crystal as all part of the same experiment, really. And, and you worked on Labyrinth as well, right? I did, yeah. I did smaller parts because I came in late, actually. I rang them out the blue, going, got me work? <laughs> and they said, we've just cast all the puppeteers, but they said we need a few background people we've noticed in in the main palace shot there aren't enough puppets we need some more creatures so this is how it works on film you go in to do a week's work as a background character and okay. they go "Oh, while you're here could you just do the <laughs> you know the main thing i did in there was the fiery characters you know the red characters yeah uh I'm were you
0: on, one of the black suits in the black
7: suits oh. yeah the team i got on was fiery number one which is kind of the lead singer if you want kevin clash was doing the head I was doing the feet, hips and shoulders, if you want, the whole body and all the dancing about. And Dave Barkley was kneeling behind me doing the arms and the hands. So it's a three-man puppet. They would film the the set, then they covered the set in black velvet, covered us in black velvet, and we all do it virtually blind. And then they, you know, match the two shots together. Almost all those things were experiments. They were all kind of -of state-of-the-art things, trying
0: things that were quite difficult, but, you know, going for it. John, you actually are a sculptor uh, primarily with the filmworks, and you you actually did the diva costume for Fifth Element, is that right?
8: I sculpted it, yes. So I was working with the costume department. I was working for Nick Dugman, which was creature effects on that film. So all the elements that are sculpted on the head to be a prosthetic makeup. The balloon shape behind the back of her head and the tentacles. So it's a combination of sculpting and fabrication to to make all the headpiece and the decorative pieces on the costume. Vin Burnham was running the costume department, and her team actually did all the corsetry and so on, so I wasn't allowed to do corsets. Um, <laughs> so it's a combination of costume and decorative bits and the, all the working parts on the head. What's your favourite piece you've ever done? Well, actually, oddly enough, Jabber and the Diva, I think, yeah. Beauty and the Beast, you know, as simple as that, mm-hmm. yeah, the two best things. Because my when the best guy performed the Diva was so good, she's up on yes. 14-inch stilts and doing this rock number, and we did that in uh, a night shoot at Covent Garden in London with about 4,000 extras. And Luke Besson insisted that nobody see her until the curtain moment, right. and she went for it. And
0: oh, the 4,000
8: board extras just went, Jesus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it,
7: was, it was brilliant, yeah. Tricks for atmosphere, though, isn't it? Yeah. it is, it's important to capture things. And One of the reasons I like Jabba as he was made, rather than the CGI one, is just atmosphere. You know, Jabba's palace really was that sleazy. When you went in there, it was really there, all of it. And you, you can't simulate that really with CGI. I know CGI is getting better, but the sheer atmosphere for actors walking in there, where all the creatures are actually real, talking to you, poking you, you know what I mean? When Leia leant against Jabba, he actually went blah, you
0: know. And you got to thrash
7: her with your with the tongue, yeah. yeah <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Like... The, the shot they didn't use was when the tongue actually licked her face. The, f- the first shot, when, when she was, you know, after the alcove thing, when she rescued Han, yeah. Uh, I tentatively pushed the tongue out because I couldn't really see what I was doing, and they said, yeah, yeah, okay. Then I heard in my earpiece. I heard Richard Markham the director saying uh, can you try can you push the tongue a bit further out and I went have you told Carrie Fisher that I'm going to change you know because you rehearse and block things he said no no I want a natural reaction so I went okay ready action and I went like this and there was a kind of muffled scream and a thing and a, cut, a cut, and uh and then I hear the director going, and I said, oh, well, what happened, what happened? And he said, oh, no, a little bit less next time, okay? We're just gonna go for it one more time. And I didn't find out mm-hmm. what had happened, but apparently I stuck the tongue in her ear or licked her cheek or something. And so it was coated in some kind of slime, right? Yeah, it's nasty, nasty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the shot you see when she flinched back, yeah. you know you know why she is, because the last time it actually caught her. And that's how directors get this stuff. And the same as not letting the actors see the diva. You, there are some things you can't
0: really act. You need the spontaneity of it. Uh, the film industry, naturally, because. Of budget constraints is pushing towards CGI and, and away from the, the analog and the real sets and the real, real puppets and real animatronics but there's a lot of people particularly from our generation of filmmakers who are really wanting to return to that because it just doesn't seem as real and no matter how good it gets it's never the same
8: I think there's a real backlash I and mean, I get real kind of metaphysical about a real witness to an event you know for me the Apollo program the important one was Apollo 8 when three human witnesses went out around the moon yeah. and came you know, so that really is the Earth, <laughs> the yeah. first three human witnesses that actually saw the Earth in space for real. Yeah, it's a bit, a bit photos,
7: but, but not, not just drawings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my yeah. thing is it's yeah. possibly generational because I've noticed that the older fans prefer the original th- uh, trilogy mm-hmm. and younger fans don't seem to mind the new ones as much. And I suspect that if you've played computer games all your life, yeah. your eye is, is, is different. They actually see the films the same way that they, they see computer games. Whereas to me, I don't buy CGI. You know, the, the right. gravity is wrong, there's all sorts of dynamic that just don't work for me. So I like the proper quality, but somebody likes CGI and that's their way of looking at the world, then they probably don't get so upset by it. I mean, I grew up with stock-free animation, and so
8: we thought we were being clever. They were going to make it 3D in real time, you know. I think the way our technology is going, it might come back full circle, because I remember working on Santa Claus, and the the producer said, can you make a free-standing walking reindeer? And I knew enough then to say, tongue-in-cheek, yes, I can, but I need 18 months, and a NASA budget, because I knew how you could get piezoelectric gyroscopes and military air bottles. But universities all over the planet Trying to make walking robots? now you've got Honda's robot you know, running up and downstairs.
0: <laughs> did so, they say yes to you on that on that no, walking no, reindeer? No, 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 no. It's all <laughs> much simpler.
7: No, no, no. The thing about the reality stuff, you know, you can do CGI that I'm not aware of. I don't mind CGI stuntmen. That's great. But nevertheless, most people I know want to see Jackie Chan movies because he's actually doing those stunts in real locations for real. Yeah. And he gets that from Buster Keaton, who did all his own stunts right. for real. No cutaways. No, you know, no gimmicks. What you see is what you get. And a lot of people like that. You know, you buy it. It's genuinely dangerous what you're watching. It's, it's exciting in a way that a CGI stuntman being blown up doesn't move me.
8: You know? Well, the best directors, I think, use the tools out of the box in the right way. Yeah. You know, they're not seduced by CGI. I mean, you can have a nice dinosaur biting somebody, and you probably use an animatronic head for that, so they really feel like they're being bitten. Yeah. And it's frightening, you know, you've got a 15-foot monster coming at you, but it can't get off and run across the set. But even the best animatronics can't do that now. Right. So it's I... CGI, but I think come back in 50 years, we will have and nanotech and biotech and you know look what's happened in the last fifty years go fifty, yeah. You won't have CGI. You'll have real monsters running about, and they'll probably take direction and want a bigger dressing room the old joke they'll <laughs> argue no, It's, it's, back. it's, it's <laughs> true.
7: Yeah, I mean it keeps on moving on, and uh, I think there's no right or wrong about it. If I'm not aware you're using CGI, I'm happy. Jurassic Park fooled me. Yeah. yeah. I never looked at it and went, oh, I can't. Uh, no, yeah. I it's the best combination of the two different sorts. Yeah, and you never stop to think: is that a real head looking in a taxi window, or is that a, you know you, your brain just doesn't
0: stop. To challenge it. And it's seldom been better than that since then, which is mm-hmm. strange. And
8: I know, yeah. yeah. No, that is weird. Some CGI off that much worse. Uh, it was sort of,
7: well, it,
0: uh, but, you know, there's good
7: CGI and bad CGI. We shouldn't just discuss it as a and, medium, but as how well you use it.
1: Now, unfortunately, at the time of these interviews, we were six years away from the existence of Rogue One. So, Diego Luna hadn't yet awoken us to the texture of Yaba. Therefore, we didn't ask about that. But rest assured, if we're ever able to reunite with these dudes or ever cross paths with the other fellows responsible for this great character, we will discover this texture. I mean, come on! So this is it for now. We will be back in two weeks with all the latest Star Wars news on State of the Empire, and as we approach the month of May, you can bet your acorns that we are most assuredly going to hit you up with some hot Willow Watch action. If you like this show and want more people to discover State of the Empire, well, You are our only hope. Please rate and review us on iTunes. There is a veritable galaxy of Star Wars podcasts out there, and if you love this one and think that we should shine brightest of all those myriad stars, then please go on iTunes, leave us a rating or a review. It is a bit of a pain in the ass, but it would make a world of difference to us. Rating is super easy and very, very, very appreciated. And if you leave a review, we will read it here on State of the Empire. You can also leave ratings and reviews on Podchaser, which is a really cool resource for podcast discovery that lets you rate and review specific episodes as well as series. And we keep an eye out in both places. State of the Empire is still co-produced by the Nerdy Show Network, and if you like what we do, then please do consider contributing to the Nerdy Show Network's Patreon at patreon.com nerdyshow nerdy show. The equipment we use, the studio we record in, is all Nerdy Show and would not be possible without listener contributions. If you donate there, you'll get access to early releases and a ton of bonus content, including State of the Empire outtakes and extended discussions. You can talk to us or retweet us by finding us on Twitter at WillowWatch underscore. And you can find us on Facebook, not only on the State of the Empire page, but also in our special Star Wars spoilers group for the most sensitive discussions. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks with an all-new State of the Empire. State of the Empire is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network, geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and SNES. You heard me right, SNES. Same as how someone might shorten Super Nintendo Entertainment System. But in Star Wars, SNES is a -a besalit goon hired to work at Club Deja on Naboo. She's a little speck of nothing on the galactic scale, but has the distinct privilege of having been headbutted and knocked on her ass by the soft-headed human female Princess Leia Organa. Good one, Snes. Consequence Podcast Network.
3: Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well,